Hello. My name's Randy, and I am also one of the pastors. Glad to be with you. Well, it was my 50th birthday a couple weeks ago, and I'm making the most of it. So last week I shared with you uh, 10 ways that you know you're getting older, and I've got 10 more. Uh, I'm going to do this for five weeks so that I give you all 50. I'm kidding. This will be the last set. I just, they were so fun. Okay. You know you're getting older when you're out of breath after worshiping. Um, Okay, you know you're getting older when your knees buckle and your belt doesn't. You know you're getting older when you sink your teeth into a steak and they stay there. You know you're getting older when you know all the answers, but nobody's asking the questions. You know you're getting older when your back goes out, but, you're, but you stay at home. I'll say that one again. You know you're getting older when your back goes out, but you stay at home. All right, never mind. You know you're getting older when you look for your glasses for half an hour and then find they were on your head the whole time. <laughs> hate when that happens. You know you're getting older when you quit trying to hold your stomach in no matter who walks into the room. You know you're getting older when happy hour is a nap. Okay, I got some amens for that one. You know you're getting older when you quit trying... Oh, wait, sorry, sorry. You know you're getting older when you can't remember what you were trying to remember. I think. I'm not sure I remember. Uh, you, uh, you know you're getting older when your idea of exercise is standing up. You know you're getting older when getting lucky means you found your car in the parking lot. And lastly, you know you're getting older when you wonder how you could be over the hill when you don't remember being on top of it. Okay. For the past few months, we have been uh, talking about living life on purpose, particularly looking at a couple of key passages where Jesus gives to us uh, four key elements for living life on purpose. Uh, These four elements are all described in directions. And the first one we usually talk about is the upward element, which has to do with encountering God. Got a good unanimous, loud resonance from that. Okay. The second is the inward element, which we describe around here having to do with experiencing friendships. I've done this every week now for a few weeks because I'm really hoping that you'll actually get this. And they, they say in education that re- repetition is important, so that's what we're doing. The third is the outward. Got a little, little mumble back there, which has to do with expanding community. And the fourth is going forward, which has to do with embracing wholeness. And the reason we talk about it is embracing wholeness is because Jesus uh, speaks about, and really the New Testament speaks on many occasions about a word called teleos, which is this word for wholeness or completeness. And the, uh, Paul very clearly talks about our need for mending as a result of brokenness. And what we need to do is to move forward towards wholeness or teleos. For the next couple of months, I want to further our our thinking on this forward element by talking about spiritual growth and becoming more like Jesus. So, before we head there this morning, let's pray. Morning. Gosh, 
this afternoon, someday. You know you're getting older when you can't change your notes. Father, we just thank you that um, you are awesome. That uh, you are an incredible source of life. And that you have so miraculously invited us to embrace that source of life. And to experience that life. A life that is demonstrated to us by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power being available to us. So we just welcome your life today. Well, that's, what, that's what wholeness is about. That's what forward is about. It's about life. The kind of life that you created us to live, not the kind of life so often we experience. So I just ask this morning, this morning, this afternoon, as, as we consider this uh, element today of hearing you and listening to you, that you would take us into uh, a new depth of connection with you in Jesus' name. Amen. For you personally, when you think of God, do you think of him as silent, quiet, or as revealing? Don't have to answer that. Just think about that. Silent, quiet, or revealing. How many, now you get to vote, how many of you think of him as quiet and mysterious? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you think of him as revealing and communicative? Okay. How many of you raised your hand on both of them? <laughs> that counts too. Christianity is described by theologians as a revealed religion. The term revelation refers to God's self-disclosure to men and women. The word is translated from a Greek word that means the drawing back of a veil to reveal hidden things. That's the true nature of God of the Bible. He reveals himself to us so that we might know, love, and serve him. One writer defines revelation as knowledge that comes to us from outside ourselves and beyond our own ability to discover. So how is it that we, with finite minds, can comprehend an infinite God? How can we, the clay pot, understand the mind of its potter? Clearly, the only way that we can know anything about God is because he has first graciously chosen to reveal himself to us. One of the key elements of spiritual growth that Jesus modeled was welcoming God's revelation, his revealing of himself, by spending time with and listening to the Father. Luke tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. Mark tells us in 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I find it interesting that other than just a, a couple of fairly brief situations, the prayer life of Jesus is not described in very much detail. So, just kind of for curiosity, when you picture Jesus going alone to these lonely places, these solitary places and praying, what do you picture happening? What do you, what do you think he did? What did it look like?
he didn't fall asleep, right? Because he was he, he knew to encourage others not to do that. Okay. Okay. All right. Suggesting that Jesus probably did a lot of listening because there are many times where Jesus is saying um, that he's only doing what he hears or sees the Father doing. The words that he has spoken are the words that the Father has given to him. That's good. So he did some listening. Somebody else? The question is, what do you think Jesus did in those times of quietness and solitude when he went to meet with the Father in prayer? What did it look like? Okay. There are some accounts where, uh, for sure, where Jesus fasted. There's some accounts where angels came and ministered to him. A couple of different accounts of that. Okay, so listening is a part of that. Okay. Okay, so you're suggesting um, that Jesus was in tune sufficiently that he was uh, engaging well with what the Father was wanting of him and that 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 required some contemplation and consideration. Okay, one behind you first. Okay. He did also speak to the Father. We have accounts of that as well. Okay. As a, a Jewish young boy, he would have cultivated a very thorough understanding of the scriptures, probably memorizing large passages uh, from the Bible and thereby being able to meditate or consider them. One more. Okay, he was uh, disengaging from people. That is very common. The, 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 he's, uh, we're going to look at an account today where that occurs. And I'm not quite fully sure what that means, but there is something about you know, the number of people just kind of pulling on you, the energy, the, uh, the spiritual needs of ministering all day, uh, praying for the sick. I mean, we, some of us have prayed maybe for an hour or two in different ministry settings, and you can come away fairly uh, tired from those situations. In my thinking, uh, I think that many times either we're taught or we come back to considering and thinking about prayer being a monologue. Uh, You know, my prayer list, my uh, bringing to God, my needs, my requests, my confessions. And uh, but I believe that Jesus, as has been suggested, uh, expressed much more 
than just simply a dialogue, but also incorporated other elements. As was already suggested, John 12:50, Jesus says, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Then in John 14, Jesus repeats this. The words you hear me speak are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So Jesus' prayer time was not a monologue. It appears that it was a dialogue. One of the ways that Jesus grew in spiritual maturity was by spending time with the Father, welcoming, learning to hear his voice, obeying what the Father said. And as we consider what does it mean uh, to move forward, what does it mean to grow spiritually as a Christian, I would advocate that we too need to learn this practice as well. Jesus was not the only person who spent time with God meeting and listening to him. Adam and Eve, were told, walked and talked with God in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. Uh, that's a picture of what God intends for us in our restored relationship with him. And I don't know about you, but again, using my imagination and picturing them walking, for some reason I want to imagine a physical uh, presence in some way, because how do you walk with anything but a physical presence? But I'm not positive that was the case. Uh, when, uh, As we're going to see, Moses also was one who spoke to God, and, and what he saw as a physical presence was a cloud or a fire. So I just wonder if instead of that physical presence that we think about in the Garden of Eden, that there wasn't a spiritual presence that was just as tangible to them, perhaps, uh, but not touchable in some way. I don't know. Anyway, we're not told uh, what that was like. But I think we sometimes move Adam and Eve into another realm or someplace different than us. Uh, Genesis 12 uh, speaks of God speaking to Abram, who later became Abraham. Moses had perhaps one of the most profound relationships with God. Exodus tells us in Exodus 33, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stand at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And so the Lord would speak to him face to face as a man speaks with his friends. Now, I don't, I mean, it says face to face, but that's an image because Moses is talking to a cloud, right? Um, And that cloud, we think of, you know, some really dark, you know, I mean, we think of storm clouds or something, you know, really, but I mean, Again, if we just kind of imagine from it, it may have simply been sort of a, a, a misty, wavy heat. I mean, we don't know, right? But it was clear that Moses knew that he was speaking with the Lord. And it's described as a face-to-face encounter. All through the Old Testament, God spoke to uh, men and women. Uh, Joshua, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Solomon, all the prophets. Then in the New Testament, there's uh, numerous references. There's uh, a disciple named Ananias who went to Paul after Paul's vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, There's accounts, of course, of Paul and Jesus we've already spoken of. But, you know, you could say to me, wow, like, Randy, almost all of those are really big spiritual dudes. And, you know, you didn't really name anybody in there that's kind of like me. Um, And that's true, but... I think that Jesus uh, brings to us and through him comes the opportunity for a relationship like these people. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 10. 
The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of them out, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Again, I would like to suggest that our relationship with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with the Father, needs to include our learning to hear their voices as well as their hearing our voice in our supplications and our expressions to them. It seems to me, though, that that is not the norm for most Christians. And I want to investigate just for a moment for us, not talking about the rest of the world and the Christians, but for us, why is that? Why is this pattern, this understanding of dialogue and hearing God's voice perhaps so limited in our experiences? I think there's a key issue um, that we see way back in the Old Testament that I think describes one of the primary difficulties we face. Way back in the life of Israel, soon after they came out of uh, their bondage in Egypt, a major problem began that I believe still continues to plague us today. In Exodus 19 and 20, we're told that following the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses on the mountain, God told Moses to prepare the people as the Lord wanted to speak so the people could hear his voice. And as you could potentially imagine, that would perhaps have been a very awesome, terrifying experience. Let me read it to you out of Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the horn, and when they saw the lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear, and said to Moses, uh, you, Would you just mind telling God that... Um, we, um, uh, you just tell us what he says, okay? And uh, we really don't want to just, we don't really want to talk to him. Uh, I think we're going to die if we do that. So here they are, this, this opportunity for this million plus people to stand in the presence of God, to hear his voice, and they say, no thank you. I, that's just a little too much for me. And I believe that from that day on, God's people have had a perpetual tendency to have somebody else talk to God for them. Just look back through church history, consider your own lives. The, The norm is for us to go have a mediator, somebody else, to read the word for us, to pray for us. And so there's a variety of reasons why there are hindrances to our uh, ability or willingness to uh, hear God's voice. Uh, Most of us uh, probably experience some fear, some insecurity, maybe some unbelief. And as a result, we're willing to just simply hear God's word secondhand. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, having my devotions, which for me consists of... <clears throat> initially reading from God's Word, 
I'm usually kind of moving slowly through uh, a section of material, and I'll just read a, a section or a thought that's together there. Uh, then I'll interact with the themes, uh, the ideas by writing in my journal, and then often that will end in prayer, kind of interacting with that text, those themes, those ideas. And on that particular day, I thought, you know, I really ought to take some time and pause and just see if God would want to say anything to me. I mean, I'm 50 years old. I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm a pastor. But I didn't do it. And I didn't do it because I thought, you know, today, real honestly, I just don't trust my ability to hear God's voice. The next day I was uh, reading a chapter on uh, hearing God's voice from a book that I'm reading currently. As I considered what the author was sharing, I felt very impressed that my problem really wasn't that I didn't trust myself to hear God's voice, but that I wasn't trusting God to speak. I wasn't trusting God to perhaps protect me from hearing other voices. My real problem was that I was afraid that God wouldn't speak and that I would be disappointed. And that is an issue of trust and belief. And that was the heart of the Israelites' problem. Chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, the author refers back to this season and time when Israel was in the wilderness. He uses a word uh, speaking of them entering God's rest which is all about this idea of God's presence and entering into his presence. The writer um, speaks of their failure to listen and responds to God's voice, quoting from Psalm 95. The writer says of Hebrews uh, 3, 7 through 10, says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. And then in verse 19, the writer says that their disobedience, what hindered them from entering God's rest, as was described in those chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, was unbelief. They just didn't trust and believe God. So I wonder what hinders you from listening and hearing, pausing to hear God's voice. It's a scary thing. Hey, as I said, two weeks ago I was apprehensive and hindered. Yet Jesus tells us in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So let's talk for a moment. Let's get genuine. We're a small group. What what are some of the hindrances that face you to hearing God's voice, to pausing and listening to his voice? I I shared with you me. (laughs) Busyness. Okay. Okay. Okay, Okay. a little ADD, a little interactivity, a little hard to wait and little stuff like that. Okay.
Okay. How long do I have to pause and wait? You know, I mean, the light's about ready to turn green. You know, the microwave's going to, the kid's going to start crying, you know, any minute now. I mean, how much time do we have? That's good. We are trained for things to be quick. And there is, uh, there's a much expression in the Old Testament about waiting on God. Let's go on over here and then I'll come back. Static. What do you mean by that, Stuart? Okay. Anybody else experience that one? We got any? We got a consensus on that one? That's the ADD thing he was bringing up. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll share with you one little trick uh, that years ago that really helped me um, in this process. Just a quick one. It's not in my notes or anything like that. It's free. You don't have to put anything in the offering for it. Um, um, if if you have paper near you, which is a, potentially a good thing to have, and those thoughts begin to pop into your head of what you need to do, just jot them down. Uh, I think there is a an issue about the mind trying to retain them. They pop in, and then there's this added element of, I need to remember to do that. And if you jot them down, then you don't have to remember that. You can let them go. Anyway, it's free. If you don't like it, it's okay. You can throw it away. I think we're over here first. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do that with my wife all the time too. You know, when I mess up, I just, you know, and and we do that with God. That's really good. Uh, What Juan was just describing was this element of, you know, we mess up, we feel unworthy, and we're in the doghouse, and I don't think he probably really wants to see me, and I'm not sure I really want to see him either, and, you know, okay. Oh, that's an interesting one. Preconceived notions of what he's going to tell me. Um, I, I'm fearful about what he might, you know, want to say. Right? That's that. That can be one of those. Couple more. Our own desires. What do you mean? We, something that we might want uh, so badly so that we somehow are, get mixed up in our thinking and maybe we think we're hearing God when we're not. I would flip the other way as well, which is that we are, uh, my situation is I'm fearful of hearing my own voice and not trusting to hear God's and so I don't even risk it. There's one in the back, Barbara. Okay. Okay, that there are times when God is speaking and his voice is coming in a a form that we're not expectant for or or trained to hear. Uh, You know, we see these accounts of, you know, Paul getting knocked off his horse with this bright light. We've got the burning bush uh, and and numerous other accounts. You know, even when you read the prophets, though it's not many of the cases, it doesn't some of them are encountering a personage some type of being, uh, but sometimes they just get the word of the Lord and you just kind of, it feels so big, you know, like, wow. But uh, I don't believe that God's voice comes that way uh, most of the time. As a matter of fact, um, I know that for me what, what has been hard for a long time now is this element of uh, my mind, um, again, like what Barbara's saying, 
thinking that somehow the voice has to sound different than my inner voice. And yet, it really can't because that's what we have is our mind. And um, it, it can, but it, it doesn't. Anyway, we're going to try an exercise. Isn't that nice and confusing? That's right. We'll work on it. I want to try uh, an exercise for us to um, perhaps begin to acclimate uh, or attune ourselves uh, to begin to potentially hear uh, God's voice, to experience him and his word uh, in perhaps a new way. Uh, in the book that I was reading, they were talking about and describing hearing God's voice. Uh, the author suggested using our imagination in our contemplation of Scripture and our engaging of God in prayer. Now, you know, occasionally we ask, you know, open your hands, picture Jesus standing in front of you, or things of this nature. But uh, I think for most of us, there's an, uh, and I'm not, not exactly sure why, where the training it might simply have come out of rationalism or whatever, but. Uh, <clears throat> there's a tendency to sort of <coughs> not trust our imagination, that somehow the imagination is more sinful than any of the rest of us, um, which it isn't. It's just a part of us. And yet it's an interesting part of us. When we think of our mind and our will and our emotions and our body as these various sundry parts of our body, there's this other piece uh, that we use a word for in English, which is imagination. And um, you know, I I can imagine, I can imagine that it that it might feel a little scary to kind of risk in that area. But I have been doing that of late, and have been experiencing uh, just very good fruit uh, from that. There, uh, the author that I'm reading from quoted Alexander White as saying, "The truly Christian imagination never lets Jesus Christ out of their sight." You open your New Testament, and by your imagination, that moment, you are one of Christ's disciples on the spot and at his feet. And I was thoughtful how much we use our imagination in our day and age. We accept it for reading books. We accept it for watching movies. And yet, when it comes to the the Bible, we tend to set that aside. And I might advocate that I think there might be some benefit to it. So I am going to lead us in an exercise. You're going to need um, some paper. I left you quite a bit of space. You're not going to need this immediately. The first couple exercises you won't need it, but we can get it passed out now. Some pens, and then there is a, a blank sheet on the back of your program. I left quite a bit of space on there. Uh, so you need that. That isn't the first exercise. We're going to get there. First, you won't uh, need anything other than your imagination. So I'm going to try a couple of uh, different um, passages uh, that are familiar stories to us from the life of Jesus. And the first one I uh, want to share is from uh, an account where Jesus and his disciples are at the home of his very good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what I would like you to try, and I know this will be, for some of you it's a piece of cake, and some of you this is going to be like you think I'm a heretic or something, uh, and or somewhere in between. But if you can, just think you're in a movie theater, I don't know what you want to do, reading a book, and I'd like you to picture the scene in your mind as I describe it. I'd like you to close your eyes, potentially that might be the most helpful. And I'd like to add something, I'd like you to become one of the characters. 
in the story. Um, You could be one of Jesus' disciples, kind of watching the scene. You could be Martha. You could be Mary. You could be Lazarus. You pick. But as we get to that character, just imagine you are they. Okay. So just sort of dial down for a minute. Close your eyes and let's start. I'm going to pray first. Father, I welcome you to speak to us. I welcome you to draw us into who you really are. And I welcome you to guard and protect us now from ourselves and from the enemy. We welcome you to help us know you better. It's late afternoon. The sun is setting. Jesus and his disciples have been walking for about eight hours, having left Jericho very early that morning. They're hot. They're tired. They're dusty. They've arrived at a small village of Bethany, located at the base of the Mount of Olives. They're just two miles away from Jerusalem. As they approach the house of their good friends, Lazarus and Mary rush out of the house, welcoming, hugging, greeting Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and the disciples are ushered into the front room where Jesus and Lazarus and a few of the disciples sit on wooden benches. The rest just sit on pillows and on the floor around the room. And Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Martha, as usual, is bustling around the kitchen. She's getting dinner ready for all this house full of guests. Jesus is soon teaching about the kingdom of God and all are enthralled with what he is saying, spellbound. After a while, Martha steps into the room. Her face is red from the heat of the kitchen. There's drops of perspiration on her brow, her hands and apron or dirty from her work. As Jesus notices her, he, he stops speaking and he turns to her. Martha, in exasperation, blurts out, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Would, would you please tell her to come and help me? Jesus looks down at Mary at his feet. He gazes into her eyes. And he looks back to Martha and with great tenderness. He says, my dear Martha, you are so worried and distracted by so many things. There are lots of ways to busy yourself. And Mary has chosen the best way. And it will not be taken from her. Open your eyes. I wonder if a couple of you might be willing to share what you experienced or felt or saw. Priscilla? I think we'll let the mic. Well, I was picturing myself as Mary, and 
for a second um, after Martha came in, I saw myself looking up at Jesus with fear in my eyes, expecting him to send me away. I was looking at it through um, Martha's eyes, just kind of thinking, you know, you know, wow, you know, all I, the sense of priorities. I, you know, this is what's important. This is what's supposed to be, you know, there. And and then realizing, I, it's upside down now. It's, you know, it's how does it? How does this work? And it's this confusion of like, you know, I don't get it. You know, that's kind of the thing. Um, I guess kind of like disappointment, not realizing, you know, just, and then, you know, just, I don't want to say regret or anything, but it's just like, you know, all the, what you could have been doing, and you haven't been doing it right the whole time, it can be a little frustrating, depending on the personality. Um, I think I was a disciple more of an observer of everything that was going on and uh, when Jesus talks to Martha I see a sense of shock disbelief at, at his words and almost a little bit like you know at first it would be you know kind of uh, I don't know maybe a little bit angry maybe a little bit hurt at his what he says because she's been working so hard and then um, and then maybe her realizing what exactly is going on and where, like Juan said, her priorities should be. So. Try just one more. I want to do a couple more of these. Well, for me, it really was a personal message because I, I do spend time with the Lord, and I'm pretty ferocious about it. And, and and so much so, like, you know, I won't answer the phone and so forth and so forth. And and the message to me was, you know, because we're in full-time ministry, that ministry isn't just about the work. It's about the master. And it's okay and desirable. And, and what I'm doing, because sometimes I feel guilty, you know, like I should have, you know, I should have. I should make t- have made time for them. I shouldn't be doing this. And, and so it was a personal encouragement to me. Just out loud to me, prior to this encounter, what tone of voice would you have said Jesus responded to Martha with? Prior to this experience, just previously having read that story. Calm, okay. Martha exasperated a little bit. I I felt like Juan was feeling a little rebuke. I don't just felt that a little bit. Did 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 this did this story help you? Did did any of you get a little bit different picture? I hope so, because I am. I believe I'm feeling 
the heart of, the, of Jesus in that story. And uh, he loves Martha. He speaks to Martha first um, in the scene with Lazarus. Claire pointing that out to me not too long ago. Anyway, <clears throat> it speaks of in the John passage. It talks about Martha, the, the one that Jesus loved. Not Mary, who they all say that he married. I don't know who said that, but anyway. Let me try another one. We'll do a, uh, This time I want to use the story of Zacchaeus from Luke 19, the vertically challenged tax collector from Jericho. Yes. Okay, close your eyes if you would. Join me in this. Um, just walk out a journey with me if you could. Imagine, again, you're one of the characters in the story. You could... Again, be one of the disciples. Uh, You could be Zacchaeus. You could just be one of the crowd. Jesus and his disciples have been uh, spotted heading into the city of Jericho. A very large crowd has formed along the dirt roadway, almost like a parade. One of those who heard Jesus was coming was a man named Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was despised by his Jewish kinsmen for overtaxing their meager earnings. There were few in the Roman world more despicable than tax collectors. Zacchaeus was also severely vertically challenged. He was extremely short. So as he ran up to the crowd, he was completely unable to see over. He was unable to push his way through. And he angrily turns from the crowd. But as he does, he spots a large tree just up the road. And he sees limbs overhanging the roadway. Zacchaeus runs uh, to the tree and he climbs up. And just as he wiggles his way out onto one of the large limbs, Jesus, noticing the movement above him, stopped. Looked up into the tree. And as their eyes met, a great big smile broke out on Jesus' face. His eyes sparkled and with laughter in his voice, he said, Zacchaeus, come on down, hurry up. I want to spend the day with you at your house. Zacchaeus practically fell out of the tree, amazed that Jesus knew his name and wanted to spend time with him, a tax collector. As they walked off together with Zacchaeus chattering like a squirrel, some in the crowd grumbled scornfully. Well, that Jesus can't be much if he hangs out with the likes of him. Later that day, as they were eating together, Zacchaeus' head slowly rises from the table. He looks at Jesus. And he says, Lord, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. And for those I have overcharged on their taxes, I'm going to give them four times back as much. Jesus turned from Zacchaeus, looking at the crowd of sitting there at the meal with them as disciples and friends of Zacchaeus. And he said, today salvation has come to this home. For this man is a true son of Abraham. And I, the Son of Man, have come to seek and to save those like him who are lost. 
okay? You can open your eyes. Any of you possibly willing to share what you felt or experienced or saw in that encounter? I was, um, it was as if I was Peter in both stories. And so with Mary and Martha, I'm like, yeah, Jesus, tell her to get out of here. Tell her to go get in the kitchen where she belongs. And so with Zacchaeus, I'm like, oh, dude, we're not going to his house, are we? We can't be seen there. Peter, Peter. (laughs) I think the amazing thing is that the... Jewish culture was based off of covenants, um, be that between a meal, between the, between people, a person and God. Um, I think it was a very significant thing for Zacchaeus, as well as his friends, as well as the disciples, to see the significance of not only Jesus recognizing him, but then saying, let's bond in a covenant meal where everybody is equal. It was it was a bigger deal to go over to somebody's house than just a casual, let's get together and go out to Easy's or whatever. It was a it was a bonding experience that almost reached several different levels emotionally, spiritually, physically. Uh, in that culture, it was a very profound thing to have a meal with somebody, especially from Jesus's background and what he was doing, to do it with a tax collector who essentially betrayed his own people to sell out to the Roman government. I was a mother who lost her home because of Zacchaeus. (laughs) So (laughs) I wasn't too happy (laughs) when I heard that Jesus was... I was liking Jesus a lot. And I thought this is a, this is the moment when Jesus is going to tell him, "You cheat, you scoundrel! Give that woman back her house." <laughs> so I didn't get to, I didn't go into the house with the rest of them, so I didn't know about I was going to get payday plus three times more. So that was kind of cool, but that was that's who I was. <laughs> um. I saw Zacchaeus before he met Jesus, before he heard he was coming. He was weary and he was disgusted with his life and self-loathing. And then being excited at the possibility of um, change, of being able to give that away. And he saw that in Jesus. He heard about Jesus being able to heal and being able to... um, you know, just bring God's presence to the world. And so he, you know, leapt at the opportunity whenever he was coming into town. So he was really excited. He climbs his tree. And then at the table, I can see Zacchaeus wanting so bad to have somebody believe him that he really wants to be a good person. He really wants to be better. He wants to leave this life behind and finally seeing a way out and finally you know Jesus gives him this opportunity to be renewed you know it's like Jesus is at his house you know and nobody else is and so people can actually look at him like a an honorable man you know hey if Jesus is hanging out with him maybe he's not all that bad so. 
come over there to you. I just got a sense that uh, Zacchaeus was just kind of like Jacob, that you know he was he was so self-interested that like he would even steal his brother's blessing and uh, and but he was so self-interested that he would even uh, you know wrestle with an angel at you know who knows what cost to himself to get a blessing and I just felt that this Zacchaeus climbing up in this tree was such an absurd thing and, and he probably didn't even care what he looked like because he wants what he wants and uh, and and I just saw that God you know saw that there there was something good in that even though he was a bad person you know Yes. Um, I guess I've always just kind of imagined from the way they describe the story that Zacchaeus was a midget or whatever is the correct word to call the little people now. Um, and I guess the way I, I, I pictured myself as Zacchaeus and feeling for his entire life as beginning as a child being hated by people before he made a choice to become a tax collector that he was picked on and despised and probably beat up, always the one getting picked on in, you know, in school or, or, or whatnot, being rejected, um, being hurt to the point where he, all of that pain turns into an incredible amount of hate and he thinks, what can I do to get back at all these people that have hurt me so much? And he turns around and he says, I'll hurt you back. And to see that that same, you know, that human reaction that we all have of, you know, giving back what we were given, he experiences with Jesus. Only Jesus gives him unconditional love. And it totally changes him. And he turns and says, okay, what can I do to give that love back that I was given? Well, I hope that, um, you know, this is new for me. It's probably new for some of you, but I would encourage you that uh, you might use this as a tool is to just uh, pause, enter these stories, tons of scripture's narrative. Uh, I'm not quite sure if it's most of it, but a lot of it is narrative. And it, it, we often, I think, read it for doctrinal truth. And it is story. And God intends it for story, and he welcomes us into the story so that we can see ourselves as one of the characters and needing the change of a Zacchaeus or needing to understand um, Martha receiving that love that Mary received, whatever. One more exercise. And this time, um, I'd like you to imagine, but then as we get near the end, I'm going to ask you to write uh, some thoughts that come to mind. So if you would get out the paper and pen and have your Bible underneath or something. Initially, I'm just going to tell a story like I did a moment ago. But then I'm going to invite you to write. And so if you'd risk with me. um, As I said, I just began this exercise a week and a half ago. And have had some just some marvelous, marvelous encounters with Christ. And I hope that this could potentially lead you into that same um, place. This also, familiar story. um, It's the feeding of the 5,000. 
And this time I'd like you to be one of the people in the crowd. One of the probably 15 to 20,000. I don't know if you know that or not. It says there's 5,000 men. And, you know, for every man in church, there's two kids and one woman, or two women and two kids. And I don't know how many, but usually there's more women than men. So if you would, just, uh, again, quiet your heart. You've been with uh, Jesus and his disciples all day. Jesus has been healing, teaching. It's been an incredible day. Just your mind is boggled with the paralytics and the blind and the lepers being healed. But it's getting late in the afternoon. The sun is beginning to dip. No one has had anything to eat since early that morning. You're a little bit of the ways back in the crowd, and you can see Jesus talking with his disciples. You can't hear what they're saying, but there seems to be some kind of commotion. A couple of the disciples walk uh, into the crowd, and they very quickly return with a little boy who's carrying a small basket. Again, you see some brief conversation and then the disciples move out into the crowd and they begin to direct you and everyone to sit down in groups of 50 and 100. Seems kind of strange but people have just kind of do it. And then as you're sitting down and you, you look back up you see Jesus raising the little boy's basket into the air. And you hear Jesus thanking God for the food and asking God to bless it. And you're confused. What's he doing? Then Jesus reaches into the basket and he draws out two small loaves of bread and five small fish. And he begins to break the bread and the fish into twelve baskets. Soon each of the disciples takes a basket and begins to pass it among the people. It becomes obvious very quickly that something incredible was happening. The food was multiplying. As the baskets were passed, there was enough bread and fish for every person. Then they were passed again. And again, and everyone had all they wanted to the full. And still at the end, the twelve baskets were still full of fish and bread. It was amazing. You just can hardly believe it. Then Jesus uh, gathers his disciples and he, he sends them off in their boats and heads them out to sea. But Jesus stays behind and he dismisses the crowd and he sends them to their homes. And as the crowd leaves, Jesus turns and walks up into the hills. But you are so overwhelmed that you decide to sit on a stone looking out onto the Sea of Galilee and just ponder that incredible day and what has happened in these last few hours. You can see the birds and the gulls flying by, the waves lightly crashing, the smell of the sea. After a while, Jesus returns and he sits on a nearby rock. And for a time, you're both silent, just looking out over the water. 
Then after a bit, Jesus turns to you and he says, what do you think about today? And I'd like you to write. I'd like you to write what you would say to Jesus. What did you think about today? Just take a moment. Just freely just write. Let the thoughts flow and just write them down. What did you think about today? Some of you may still be writing, but I just you can do this exercise later perhaps. But as you finish sharing with Jesus what you thought about the day, you pause and then you look at him and you say, what did you think about the day, Jesus? And again, I'd like you to write, what does Jesus say to you? In response to your question to him, what did he think about today? As you might find yourself attempting to implement a model like this, perhaps other questions would come to mind. Perhaps Jesus might say other things to you. You might have a question for him. I understand this is a really fairly unique approach. 
and a little scary. But is there anyone here who would be willing to share a portion of what you said to Jesus that you feel would be not too vulnerable to share? Okay, thank you. This is you answering Jesus. What did you think of today? I am so full, even to the even in the midst of physical exhaustion, even before having the bread or fish that he shared. I realize you fill us up to the fullest if we draw close to you. That's cool. Someone else? This is the question of what did uh, you asking Jesus, right? Answering Jesus' question. Sorry. I was at the temple when you read from the scroll of Isaiah and said, Today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing, and I didn't understand. Now I understand. That's cool. All right, how about now if somebody would be willing to share what, what Jesus said to you about what he thought about the day? Anybody? I have a kind of a simple answer. It's everyone was fed and no one went hungry. I like that. I'm sorry, Barbara. He told me, um, I'm so glad that you decided to do what I told you to do this morning and... Now that you've done that, I will be able to trust you with many more things because today was good. Thank you. I want to share with you um, one of my encounters this week. It was actually based out of having read that passage from Exodus 33 that I shared earlier about the people being frightened of God's presence. And I had um, read that passage and then I interacted with it and prayed as I normally do. And then I wanted to hear Jesus, but I felt a little awkward. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just start talking. So I wrote, I've come, O Lord, to this tent of meeting to be with you and to hear your voice. Thank you for loving me and creating me for your presence. Oh, that I would minister to you by being with you. I think I'd like to be with you today for you. I'm really sad that so few take the time to be with you. I'm so sad that you will miss so many in eternity because they have chosen their way instead of your way. I'm so sorry. But let us share this moment. Might I be with you, your adopted son, who has come to sit and be with you. And I heard Jesus say, thank you for coming. Thank you for turning aside today to be with me. 
I was sad this morning. I was sad thinking of my lost children. I miss them so much. It's so hard as a father to form, to bear, and to birth each one, caring for them only to have them turn their back on me and leave home, my presence. Yes, abiding in me is home. To dwell in me and I in you is home. That's the rest that the writer of Hebrews spoke of. I'm always waiting and watching the eternal prodigal father, hoping and praying my children will come home. I suffer pain with their decisions. I long to reach out and pluck them out of their distress, but I can't. I cannot violate their will. They must choose. Oh, but I wish they would remember and choose me. I am so much better than the imitations and the facades that Satan presents. Thank you for caring this morning. Thank you for sharing in my sorrow. You have asked and welcomed my heart. It has helped. But I do also need partners to continue to be voices in the wilderness. The repentance John preached was a message of warning. Look out, you're going the wrong way. That way is not good for you. It'll end in destruction. Please turn around before it's too late. It was the message from a distressed parent who longs for the best for his children. Oh, that people would get that. Satan has so deceived so many into thinking I am withholding good from them that they will miss out on something good or fun if they follow me, but it's a lie. The only good there is, is in me. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for um, visiting us today, spending time with us. Showing us your love for Mary and Martha. Showing us your unconditional love to Zacchaeus. Showing us things about our own hearts. Father, I ask that you would help us to journey into knowing you more intimately. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus said eternal life is this, that they would know the Father and Christ his Son. Thank you for the walks this week on the Sea of Galilee that I took with you. Thank you that you are teaching me to follow you even in the midst of challenges and pain and difficulty.
trust you even when I cannot see the way to go. I welcome you, Holy Spirit, to teach us all things about about Jesus. That you would guard and protect us and that we would learn to trust you. Jesus' name. Amen. Clara? Well, thanks for taking the journey with me this afternoon. I hope um, that was helpful to you. If you think I'm a heretic, come talk to me, please. I'd like to walk that journey out with you as well. Or the difficulties that you might be facing with that. I think that would I'd much rather dialogue with you than uh, perhaps conclusions made on your part. Thanks for being with us. Um, if I could have some of the um, leaders and community group leaders and those here who are trained to pray to come on up. Um, as has been suggested, we in our church provide an opportunity for uh, those to uh, come forward and receive prayer. Um, We often come to church with stuff, and uh, God is here to minister care and help to you. Some of you might need some coaching. Maybe you're facing some decisions. Uh, Maybe you just uh, would like someone to kind of know what's going on in your life, uh, someone to pray with. So if we could have a couple more folks come on up, and then we'll have uh, those of you who would like to come. We would welcome you to do that. Grace to you. Thanks for coming. Have a great week.